Thank you, Lord. Avinu Makenu, our Father, our King, we come to you in the name of Yeshua, thanking you for your blessings and your wonderful, wonderful leading of your Holy Spirit. And I just submit myself to you, Abba, that you would guide me and you would direct me on the things you've placed in my heart. And Lord, let, us, let me just do it with joy and dependence on your spirit. In Yeshua's name, I pray that you open up every heart, every ear that they may receive, that they may even receive something that I don't even know what I'm saying, but you are speaking to them, taking what I say to speak something directly to the hearts in order to bring that love, bring that call to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, so we are in a great season, and that's the season of the high holy days that starts with Yom Teruah, which is the blowing of the shofar and wakens you up from Yom Teruah, and we blow and we wake everybody up, and a call to gather and repentance, and we count our days during that time in preparation, 10 days to take a look, stock of our lives, what have we been doing, how have we been living, have we been serving God, have we been walking with God, are, are there relationships that need to be restored, that we've carried a grudge and we shouldn't have, and it's a good opportunity, 10 days, to take a good look and put things in right order, because we're coming, coming up to the time of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So you come to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus, was the time, the only time, that the high priest could go into the most holy place of the tabernacle and later of the temple. Because you had the most holy place, the most inner part of the tabernacle. Then you had a holy place that the priest could go every day. You had to put the showbread out, had to keep the menorah lit, he'd do all kinds of things like that. And then you had the outer court where the sacrifices were done and the washing of your hands and people could come to that place. And then later on when the temple was built, they even divided and they had a court of the Gentiles and a court, and a court of women was a little bit closer and they made all these divisions. And that's part of what Paul talks about in his scripture when he talks about that middle wall of being pulled down, that, that wall that kept the Gentiles out. So no, that's been, that's in Messiah, that's been torn down so that everybody has access to go into the most holy place. But, and when the tabernacle was in operation, when the temple was in operation, only the high priest could go into the most holy place and only once a year and he could never go in without blood. And so Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and we talked about this on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement was the time that atonement was made for the sins of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The priest would actually confess all the sins of Israel onto that goat, and then that goat would be taken outside of the camp to carry the sins of Israel away. And that was a tradition in the first century that was established. The Talmud speaks of this, that there was a ribbon that they would tie on the scapegoat and they'd take the other side of this ribbon and hang it up on the, on the door of, of the temple, the tabernacle. And, they, and, and if the Talmud, and you know, this is, this is Jewish folklore, but it's well written down that this happened. And you know, with God, all things are possible. But that when the Talmud was accepted, that this ribbon that was red would turn white. According to Jewish Talmudic teachings, that there was a time that it stopped turning. You know when that was? When was it? When Yeshua was crucified. That they write in their own writing that after that time, it never, never changed again. 
And, and you know, we're like, for us, we're like, whoa, that's interesting that you would say that. Because we know that God provided the ultimate sacrifice. How many know that the scripture says that concerning the sacrifices that there are types and shadows of things to come? How many know the scriptures teach that? Okay, I'm glad you know that because we'd be in trouble because I didn't see anybody when we were out at the, uh, at, at the at Yom Kippur. I didn't see anybody, not even Elaine brought an animal in here to be sacrificed. And, and she's particularly making sure every little thing is covered. But she didn't bring one on the Day of Atonement. I, I didn't see one. Uh, and then it would be a problem anyway because the scriptures are very clear there's only one place you can make that sacrifice, and it's not Washington, D.C., okay? <laughs> yeah, it's in Jerusalem. It is in Jerusalem that you have to go and make that and have the temple. And really, for almost 2,000 years, that sacrifice has not been offered up because there's been no temple to do that on. And, and even though there are those who like to reestablish that, they have to try to, you know, make, well, what are you doing for atonement? Because modern Judaism has well-developed traditions and rituals that don't even really concern itself with that. And they're like, oh, no, no, we don't need atonement. You know, just study of Torah and good deeds, and these, these are things in prayer. That's all we need. That, that's our thing for the day. Holy, where'd you get that from? Where, where is the blood for the altar. Where is the atonement? I have a friend, he was raised Orthodox, Jewish, and we could get into debates of this for years. And we just talked back and forth, back and forth. He's a wonderful guy. I love him. And finally one year, you know, I looked at him. I said, hey, I, I know Yom Kippur is coming up. And I said, look, I just got a question. I'm not trying to start a fight. It's just a question. What about the atonement? Lead Leviticus. And he read it and, I said, what about it? And then he responded, he said, well, yeah, you're right. I, I, that's a problem. But what about you guys? Uh, do y'all have an altar there at Ahavat? Did y'all slay animals? I said, no, we don't need to slay animals because they're shy, they are type and shadow of things to come. And we see that Messiah Yeshua fulfilled the requirements of the blood atonement, that he is the suffering servant, that he's the one that shed his blood for the sins of Israel and for the nations of the earth. And that's what we see in the concerning the Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah of Joseph, looking at the story and life of Joseph, who was sold into slavery, betrayed by his brethren. They didn't know who he was. And later on, he was raised up. The nations, the Gentiles went after Joseph. Joseph's a great guy. We like this guy, Joseph. Let's follow after him. He's a great leader. And yet his own people didn't even know who he was. And though yet they were drawn to him because they were in need. And then at that point, Joseph reveals to them, to them who he is. Well, the rabbis long ago understood that this was an imagery of the Messiah, that the Messiah would suffer and his people wouldn't know him. They'd call him the leprous one. We, we don't have anything to do with him, but that at some point he would be revealed and all of Israel then will see him who was pierced for them. And they go, he's the one. Now, God doesn't have to wait to then. He's already started to work. I mean, the whole story of the gospel is God showing the work that he's been doing that all these Jewish people, I mean, all of the disciples, all the, especially the 12, are all Jewish. On the day of Shavuot, a bunch of Jewish people gathered together and the Spirit of God is poured on. The first immersion of the Holy Spirit was on Jewish people. Yeshua himself is a Jew. 
The whole book of Acts is about these Jewish men being sent out and preach the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth. And those guys understood first they were just going to go to Jewish guys. And God had stepped in and said, no, no, no. You don't have to wait till the fullness of the kingdom of God has come to the earth and to Israel before salvation is offered to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. And so God makes it clear, mainly at the time, I mean, I already worked with Samaria, but he really made it clean, made it clear is when he worked with Peter, and it's interesting, you know, Peter was entrusted with the, the gospel to the circumcision. Paul was the one that was called to go to the Gentiles, but the one who first, in a primary way, brings the message of the gospel to the Goyim, to the Gentiles, is Peter. He's up there waiting for supper to be prepared, and, and, and so he went up on the rooftop. That's what you did in those days. You didn't have, today would be written different, and I went out on my deck in the backyard, because that's what we do today. We don't go on the rooftop. Many of us don't even have porches in the front. Some of us may, but it was a time that the porch was a place you used to hang out. Then they came out with decks, and that was put in the back, so everybody hangs out in the deck in the backyard. It's kind of nice when you hung out in the front, because you got to meet all your neighbors and talk to them, right? But in those days, where you had extra space, they didn't build a deck. They just went on the top of the roof. It was flat. And so you went up there and you hung out up there. And it was a great place to go and pray, get away from everything. And Peter's up there praying. We read about that in Acts 10 and 11. And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying. And, and while he's praying, he's given a vision of unclean things. Comes down from heaven on a sheet with all these unclean animals and critters. And he hears the voice from heaven say, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter, like a good Jewish boy that he was, said, no, Lord. That always just amazes me. That Peter said, no, Lord. Some people don't get that. Like, some people today, God comes and tells you to do something, you just do it. Whatever he says do, I'm just going to do because I'm a faithful servant. Well, so is Peter. Because Peter already knew that God has spoken to the house of Israel and Judah concerning what was food and what was not food, and they were not to eat the unclean animals. They were only to eat the clean animals. And he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. Hold it. This is the Holy Spirit-filled tongue-speaking Peter. Some people say, well, you know, you know, he, you know he, he, he was in that old law. Oh, no, this is the Holy Spirit tongue-speaking Peter full of power and might. 3,000 souls came to salvation after one sermon message. I would love to see that happen. And he goes, no, Lord. And the Lord brings it down again and says, Peter, rise up and eat. Maybe you're thinking, oh, maybe he's giving him a chance to change his mind. Peter once again says, no, Lord. And then the third time comes, he says, no way. I've never eaten anything unclean, Lord. And then the vision goes away. And though there are a lot of commentators today and pastors and others who say, yeah, God was now showing Peter that he can go out and hit the crab shack and the ham hock shack and, and eat all this unclean food. Though people say that's what it means, I'd rather go with Peter and see what he says. And the scriptures say that Peter pondered in his head, what does this vision mean? Because he knew that a God had already spoken to him, don't eat unclean animals. 
So he's now like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? I don't understand. Why would God tell me to do this? And then the Spirit of the Lord says, oh, there's somebody at the door. Go with them. Knock, knock. He goes, okay. He goes with them. Bunch of Gentiles at the door. He's like, oh, I don't know about this. I'm going to bring some of my Jewish friends with me. And then we'll go see what's going on. We go to Cornelius. Here's Cornelius. Who's Cornelius? He's a God-fearer. He's a Gentile who acknowledges that the house of Israel and house of Judah, that their God is the God. It's not one of the Roman gods. It's not one of the pagan gods. But the God of Israel is the only one and true God. And so he already had drawn close, but he hadn't gone through any of the Pharisaic conversions to become a, a, a proselyte. He just simply was a God-fearer says, hey, they got the real deal. These Roman gods aren't real gods. I'm going to go hang out at the, at the synagogue in the back somewhere and just kind of hear some good stuff. And, and he had a good testimony. He was known to give alms and prayers for the house of Israel and Judah. That's probably why reason, one of the reasons why God picked him. And so when Peter gets there, he comes to this room and assembled there a bunch of Gentiles. Not only God fears but those who were idolaters and pagan worship and following their gods. And they all got, he got them all together. And here comes Peter, he shows up. And you got to imagine thinking, you know, because the separation between Jew and Gentile was very strong then. You know, Jewish people just didn't really have much to do with the Gentiles for a lot of reasons. One reason, because most of the Gentiles worship foreign gods. Second reason is because some of the wicked stuff they did could cause you to be defiled and you would not be able to go and worship in the temple. So you kind of kept your distance. Like, you know, I'm not going over there because I could get defiled and I I have to wait so many days to clean and I won't be able to go to worship. So you're not just going to leave them Gentiles alone, not have anything to do with them. But he comes in and there they all are. Think what's going through his head. Oh my, what have I got myself into? What's going on here? Why would God, why would you send me here and all these goyima there? And then God quickens to him. And he starts to preach about Yeshua. And he says to them, God has shown to me that what I have made clean do not call common. And Peter gives us what the understanding of the vision is. Because visions need to be interpreted. And it wasn't that you can now go to the crab shack. That's not the interpretation. The interpretation is that the goyim, which were considered unclean, that through Messiah Yeshua and the blood atonement, they will now be considered clean if they receive Messiah and God's bringing them in. And while he's preaching, the Ruach HaKodesh is released upon them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and start to speak in other languages and all the Jewish people that Peter brought with them were astonished. How did those Gentiles get our Holy Spirit? That's what they're saying. How did they get it? How did they get the Holy Spirit? We're, we're the chosen people. We're the special ones. How do these guys got the Holy Spirit on them? And Peter steps up as an apostle and says, I command you all to be baptized. (laughs) All of you be immersed. And they all got immersed. And then he had to go back and tell the rest of the the leadership what had happened. Because they were wondering, what are you doing here, Peter? Are you kind of like going off the trail here? No, we explained it. And their words were, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles also in the name of Yeshua. This is important with that. Because that's one of the questions, if you've been in a Messianic community or any community where they seek to, in some form or fashion, to celebrate the high holy days, people who don't do that many times will ask you, why are you doing it? Are you doing it to be saved? 
Don't you know salvation is in Yeshua only? Of course I know salvation is in Yeshua only. I'm not doing it to do, enter into salvation. Salvation was purchased through the Messiah. He's the only name under heaven by which men must be saved. And then I shock people many times as I tell them, and a lot of people don't like to hear this. I say, actually, for about 2,000 years, no one on the planet has kept any of the high holy days according to the Torah. Nobody, including the ultra-Orthodox. You say, well, how can you say that? I see people having, building sukkahs all over, that, all over the neighborhood. I see people uh, having Yom Teruah service. I see people, hey, the synagogue down the street is packed on Yom Kippur. What do you mean people are gathered there? Yes, they are gathered there, just as we gathered. But we did not keep that commandment according to the Mosaic law. I can tell you why. First of all, because we're in D.C. That's the first reason. According to Deuteronomy 16, 16, God says there are three festivals. Shaloch, Regalim, that's what it's called. The three pilgrimage festivals that, that the house of Israel and Judah are to return, which is Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And they're to return to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Because it was only in Jerusalem is where you could offer up the atonement sacrifices that were required for all the feasts. And all of them had sacrifices. It wasn't just the blowing of the shofar. It wasn't just praying and confessing your sins. But God was very explicit about, hey, offer this burnt offering, this sin offering, this many goats, this many bulls, this many lambs. This is where you're supposed to do this. Well, you show me the community in, the, in D.C. that uh, uh, in the whole United States or anywhere else in the world that offer up all those sacrifices and the altar they built to do it on, by what authority did they do it? Not by the word of God by their own idea that I'm just going to build this because I want to keep God's Torah. So I'm going to go with my own mind and my own thought. So I'm obedient, but you're not obedient if you're setting up an altar outside of where God said to set it up. So that's why I say with boldness, there's no one, no one, even the ultra-Orthodox do not keep any other feast according to Torah. And that shakes some people up. Why? Because they paste their pride on that they keep the commandments of God and therefore they are better than the rest of the body of Messiah because they keep the commandments of God. But you don't keep the commandments of God. So it must be another reason why. People don't understand in Messianic Judaism why we do what we do. They think we do it because we're trying to achieve salvation, but that's not the case. We do it for several reasons. And some of them are the same reasons that the ultra-Orthodox and others have developed over the years. Knowing that there's not a tabernacle, what do you do? What do you do? Well, let me ask you a question. If you had a tradition of celebrating an anniversary or a birthday and maybe going back to the place for your anniversary to celebrate, and you were, for some reason, forbidden to go to that place, would you just simply forget your anniversary? Or would every year you say, well, you know, I know we would love to go back to the Niagara Falls where we had our honeymoon, but it's forbidden to go there now. We can't go, but you would still remember your anniversary. You still track with it, with the flow of it, because you're connected to it. Well, that's one of the reasons that came from the traditional community, saying that in the diaspora, meaning outside of Israel, 
you still have to track with what happens in Jerusalem because you're connected to the land and the people. And so even when Israel was kicked out of the land and the temple destroyed and wiped out, that the rabbis had enough sense to say, you know what, we're not going to just sit back and forget about these feasts. We're going to remember them. Now, we know we can't do the sacrifices because we're not in Jerusalem, but we can remember the prayers that are offered up, and we can remember the time frame so that we're connected to it, so that in God and his infinite wisdom, when he opens up the door for this thing to be established in the land again, we won't be out of step with his timetable and what he's doing. Because the Moedim of God, the appointed times, are his times. I know we say they're Jewish holidays, but the scriptures don't call them that. The scripture says they are God's appointed times. Now, he does have a covenant relationship with the house of Israel and Judah, so it only makes sense that since it's his time and he's covenant with them to bring them into his days, we understand it belongs to them as well. He did not covenant with any other nation on the earth to keep these things. Sometimes that's hard for people to accept. But it's the reality, it's the truth. You will be lacking to find the scripture where God came to Egypt, the very nation that he took Israel out of, and say, oh, you Egyptians, make sure you build sukkahs and dwell in them and booths. Never said that to the Egyptians. Never. What he did with the Egyptians, a lot of them drowned in the sea. They didn't have opportunity to build a sukkah because they were dead. But with Israel, he says, okay, now that you guys are wandering around the wilderness, you are to build these booths. Let's take a look at that. Thank you, Father. Leviticus 23, verse 33. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of the seventh month, that would be this month, the lunar month of Tishri, he says, shall be the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, for seven days to the Lord. On the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, convocation, meaning a gathering together for prayer and those kind of things, is what convocation is. You should do no customary work on it. You don't seek to do the normal things that you would do as far as to make a living. Let me, let me say something about work. The, work. the Hebrew word for work is malachot. And some people don't take the time to think these things through, but God says, do no work. Well, hopefully we have enough relationship with God. So, well, God, what do you mean by work? Does it mean I stay in bed all day and just sleep? Can I get up and get something to eat? Can I move a chair? Can I play an instrument? I'm going to tell you, throughout the world of Judaism, people have different opinions. In an Orthodox community, you couldn't wave the lulaf today because you have to carry it to the temple, and they say that's work, so you can't do it. In fact, if Yom Terah falls on Shabbat, the traditional Orthodox community will not blow the shofar on that day, even though God says to blow. And the Messianic movement, some of us go that way. Most of us say, nope, God says to blow, we're going to blow. We have to ask the question, God, what do you mean by work? Was it work when you commanded the, the whole trial, all the warriors to march around Jericho for eight days? Guess what? One of those days had to be the Sabbath. Did it not? And they marched around with their weapons and blowing and everything. Yeshua says the priest profane the, 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 the Sabbath every day, but they're guiltless. They're not guilty. You say, well, how do they profane the Sabbath? Well, look at all the work they have to do on the Sabbath. I've said this many times. The priests work harder on the Sabbath than they did any other day of the week. You know why? 
because additional sacrifices were required on the Sabbath than the regular day of the week. So the regular day of the week is kind of sitting back, okay, this is that. And then the Sabbath comes and well, do what you normally do. Oh, and by the way, here's some additional sacrifices to offer up. What? I got to work harder on the Sabbath? I thought it was supposed to be a day of rest. But not a rest from worshiping God. Not a rest of giving glory to God, which is what sacrifice is all about. And yes, it does require picking up the animal. It does require cutting its throat. It does require keeping the fire going so you could do these sacrifices. If you didn't do any of that, you would not be wanting to eat cold lamb that's not cooked. When God says it's supposed to be put on the altar so it'll be a pleasing smell. So sometimes you gotta think through what God means by work. Yeshua, our Messiah, told us it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Because by the first century, they had come up with lots of rules and regulations what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Well, that's work, that's work. And everybody had their opinion of what's working. Yeshua comes along and says, look, it is lawful to do what is good. People have rules. You can't use a rope and pull an animal out. He said, hold it, but which one of you would do that? If somebody fell in a ditch, you would help your animal out of it. You wouldn't leave it to starve. So it must not be anything about, shall we say, exercising energy on the Sabbath. It's not what God was referring to. Because clearly those who would really seek to observe the Sabbath according to the heart of Yeshua would be very busy seeking to do what is good and holy and righteous. Yeshua healed on the Sabbath. Yeshua raised the dead on the Sabbath. His disciples walked through a field, were hungry, pulled some fruit off the tree, and Yeshua says they're not guilty. Some people get into rules like that. Oh, it's the Sabbath. You can't take an apple off the apple tree that's outside your house because that's violating the Sabbath. Well, God didn't say that. That's an opinion of man. Yeshua the Messiah says, no, you meeting your needs is perfectly okay. You're not gathering it all to go out and, 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 and you know, I'm get all these apples and sell them on the street corner. So we got to think these things through sometimes. And we got to look at the house of Israel and Judah who've had to carry, figure this stuff out for thousands of years to see what insight they've gained for doing it for a couple of thousand years. But for us, ultimately, we do look to Yeshua. If you ever read the Talmud, one of the things you'll see with the Talmud, which is the codification of Jewish law and thoughts on different issues, one of the things you will see when, when you read the Gemara of the, of the Talmud, you'll hear the words, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said this, this rabbi said this. That's fine. Now you know who had the opinion. But I always say that in the Messianic movement, though we can look at all those other opinions, ultimately we say, Yeshua, the Messiah, who is our only great rabbi, he says it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And that's what I stand on. And that's what I believe. So just throwing that in for free. He says, on the eighth day, he says, for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not offer an offering made by fire to the you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice offering, a drink offering, everything on its day besides the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. He said, here are all the other things you got to do. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath, a Sabbath time. On the eighth day, there shall be a Sabbath time. 
And you shall take for yourselves on the first day, when? On the first day. You do what? When are you gathering for the, these things? When are you going out gathering sticks? That one guy got in trouble for gathering sticks, but, but here's a day that's set aside Sabbath and you're told to go out and gather? Take these trees on the first day? Oh, you need to look a little deeper and say, hold it, what was the issue with this guy gathering fire, uh, gathering sticks on the Sabbath? What was going on that God took issue with that? You dig deeper and see that he was, they were dealing with the whole thing about God's provision and the manna and all these things. And people were like, I don't believe you, God. I'm going to go out anyway and look for something when God says don't on the Sabbath because I'm going to give you a double portion on Friday. But they went out anyway. And this guy's gathering sticks. It wasn't just a few sticks to build a little thing, but he was gathering the logs to build a huge thing to do work. Scholars will show that. But here we're told that on the first day, you shall gather the fruit of the land. When you've gathered the fruit of the land, on that first day, it shall be a Sabbath rest, Sabbath time, and you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, the branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before your God for seven days. Now, traditional Judaism understand, hey, this is something we can do. We don't have a tabernacle, we can't do sacrifices, but we do everything that God says we can do, so we'll do it. God says gather these things and we'll celebrate before him. So that's why in traditional Judaism and all throughout, wherever it may be, that those who are practicing these things will build. Now, they've had a lot of years to get this thing down and get it right. One thing that's hard is that the very things that are mentioned here may not be where you are. What if you were in Alaska? I don't know how many leafy bough trees are in Alaska. What if you were in Antarctica? I don't know how many, you step out of the thing, where are the leafy trees? And they won't be there. So you have a hard time celebrating that with the things around you. But thank God there's this thing called Amazon. Maybe God anticipated Amazon. And with a few days ahead, especially if you have Prime and get two-day delivery, you can say, Lulav. And all of a sudden, boom. And in two days, it can be to you. And it comes from Israel, and it pegs those species where rabbis have argued and debated what those species are, and they pick those species, and they put it together, and they've developed a way of doing it so that everybody wouldn't just be doing it any way they want to do it. This is one of the reasons why you have communities. And this is one of the reasons why God established leaders of the community, to help bring a certain amount, not all, but a certain amount of conformity so that we can all be on the same page together when we do things. So through the years, God has used various leaders for, for 16, 1800 years to develop traditions to help the community flow together as one. And the Lulav and the Ektrav is one of those. It's a wonderful way, even the way of shaking it. Though with Judaism, there's usually various opinions about how things to do, like with the lulav, you know. Some say, well, you shake to the east, you shake to the west, then, then you, with the west that's behind you, then you go to the south, then you go to the north, then you go up and down. Others say, no, 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 no. You start to the south, you go to the north, then you go upward, then you go downward, then you go to the east, then you go back. I mean, there are various rules and opinions that people have of it. Some people say you must turn in each direction 
to, to as you go. Some people have that tradition. Some of the Jewish people here may have had that tradition growing up where they turn. Others say, no, 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 I'm more used to, you know, this is what I grew up with. People have different ways, but it's interesting, they all use the lulav and the ekshrog. That's something that has become consistent so that no matter where you go, if somebody's going to wave the lulav, you go, hey, I know about that. I know what that's all about. And you can identify with it. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And so one of the things we seek to do as a Messianic Jewish community, obviously the Jewish believers in here want to stay connected to their tradition and history that God has given to them. But what about the non-Jews? Well, we'll get to that. But not right now. We're going to move on. Hallelujah. God says this should be a day of rejoicing. Leviticus 23, 39. It says you shall rejoice before the Lord for seven days with the lulav, with all these godly things. The, the, the traditional community made it the lulav. God doesn't call it a lulav, but this is what they created by bringing the species together, the ektrog, and say, so here it is. This is what God, these are these species, and now we're going to celebrate for the Lord. We're going to wave it for the Lord as an offering, and we're going to speak blessings, and we're going to celebrate. And we, and thanks to, to Robin, Alyssa, we, we shook the lulav on, on, on the uh, first day of Sukkot. He says in verse 42, you should dwell in booths for seven days. Why should you do that? Are you renovating your house during this time? I mean, why, why do this? Why should I dwell? And, you know, but he, well, he tells us. He says, you shall celebrate it for seven months. Verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, I made them dwell in booths. I brought them out in the wilderness. Say, okay, you're going to build some, some temporary shelters here for 40 years. And you're going to dwell in those. And now, with the feast of Sukkot, I want you to do this so that everybody will know that I made you dwell in booths in the wilderness. Why? So that they would know that he is Adonayira, that he's the one that provides for them, even in the wilderness. He will provide for you. They were to understand that God came and tabernacled with them. They would begin to have a concept of Emmanuel, God dwelling with us in our communities. That we're not to depend upon what we can build with our own hands, but we're to depend on the Lord, even if it's a temporary shelter, that he's the one that watches over us and protects us. Even in the midst of our enemy, he prepares a table for us to sit down and have tea time. Isn't it amazing? I mean, what kind of, could you imagine today some guy is head of the military, right in the thick of war, the enemy's right there, and the guy comes and says, okay, everybody, set up a table, let's bring the food out, let's all sit down, get on your best clothes, we're going to have tea together, we're going to just sit down and enjoy ourselves. And everybody's, um, um, weapons, enemy, pointing, you know, nukes coming out of Korea, we, you know... Are you sure we want to sit down and have a meal here? You know, maybe we should. But God says, no, no, no. My people, sit down in the presence of your enemies. And I'm going to set up a table for you. And I'm going to provide for you. And the enemies are going to like, what in the world is this all about? We're ready to attack. And they're sitting there throwing a party. 
Why? Because our God is great. Our God is powerful. Our God is our provider. Our God is our warrior. He's our protector. And so we're not even afraid, even when the enemies are all around us. Because there's the mountains of Jerusalem that are our protection. He says, in Deuteronomy 16, verse 13 to 15, you gather in the corn and the wine, you will rejoice in the feast. And here he tells us, even the garim, the fatherless, and the widow that is within their gates, because Yahweh has blessed them in all thy increase and all their works. Even the garim, the stranger that joined himself with the camp of Israel, that they didn't have to sit in the corner, you know, like adopted children thinking that they're not part of it. But they could rejoice also. They could say, well, we're not, we're, we can't trace our heritage back to Abraham. We, we kind of came out and we saw what was going down in Egypt. All those foreign gods we used to think were gods, now we see they're not God, and the God of Israel is the only true God, and we're not staying here in Egypt. Why are we going to serve gods that are not really gods? We want to serve the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going out with them. And yeah, we don't have that heritage, but we, we, we're joining ourselves with the people that are following after the one true God. And so they get out there, and God so loves that that he even puts special rules in Torah concerning the stranger that dwelt in the midst. They couldn't be mistreated. In fact, they were given special privileges during harvest season that they could glean the corner of the fields, that the fatherless and the widows and the stranger in the midst, because they may not have their own land to have their own provision, but God was aware of them, saying, no, I'm going to make sure you're okay. This was God's uh, in a sense, I, some people say welfare. No, it's workfare because they had to go out and gather. But those who had a lot had to make it available to them to come and get it. You couldn't hoard it to yourself. Say, I ain't sharing anything with you. No, you had a way to bring them along the side. Say, oh, you need help? Well, hey, you know, today you may not own a field, but it may be something else. It may be that, hey, I, you know, tell you what, vacuum that and I, I'll give you. There's, there's some gathering you need to do that you will get provision and taken care of. And that's what that was all about. Ruth had to go out. They didn't just sit there, you know, and she got blessed by Boaz because he had his eye on her, right? You know, it's like, she's kind of good looking. She's nice. So he made sure she got a little extra thing, you know. She wasn't working as hard as the rest of the people Hank working out. You know, all of a sudden, she just see a bunch of stuff already packaged, put together. You know, boom, oh, okay. <laughs> this is all right. But when she first got there, she had to go out and she had to gather what was left, what was there, and then she'd pull it in. She couldn't be lazy. She couldn't just sit back and say, I just want this for myself because I need to be taken care of. No, she had to get up on her feet and do the best that she could to bring provision. But because God is the one that will provide for you, but you got to go out and find out where that provision is. Although Amazon delivers a lot of things, but not a paycheck. Can't go in there and say, I need $1,000 this week, and they send it to you on two days because <laughs> you got Prime. They don't do that unless you work for Amazon. You have to go out and trust God. It's saying, God, I believe you that you are the provider. And so since you said, it's just like, it's just like the manna. I mean, come on. How many people have ever run up to that point that there would be food just on the ground? For 40 years, that's right. You just get up and there it is. Somebody said, look, you don't have to go to the grocery store. 
Don't wait for Harris Teeter to open up. Don't wait, don't wait for Whole Foods to open up. Don't, don't wait for Wegmans to open up. All you got to do is step outside of your tent and it will be on the ground. Now, you got to get up, though. You got to get up. You got to get up, open the door. It ain't going to be in the door of your tent. I mean, it's not going to be inside your house. You're not going to wake up and look on the side of the bed and just reach down and grab some manna and start eating it. It's outside. And you got to get up and go out and meet the Lord early in the morning. Early in the morning. You got to get up and say, okay, Lord God, you are my provider and I know you got something for me. You looking for a job? Don't wait for it to come to you. Start looking for it. Get out there. Start calling. Start talking to people. Whatever it is that you do, you got to do it. Some people drive Uber. Some people drive a cab. Sometimes they fight each other. (laughs) Trying to fight over the customers. But they both got to get up and get out there. You can't drive Uber and stay at home and make a living and make some money. You got to rise up early and get out there. So the provision that God's providing for you will be there for you. God is your provider, but he wants you to get up and take the strength and breath that he's given you and walk out in faith, believing that whatever he has for you is out there and it will come to you. He's faithful with those things. And he might tell, just like, he, just like Ruth had a Boaz, there may be somebody in here, not in a, in a romantic sense, but in the sense of they may be your Boaz. That God quickens their heart and says, I want you to slip some money to this person. And some of you know that's happened to you. Somebody's just come up and say, here's a little something for you. Well, why'd you do that? God told me to do it. Well, God spoke to Boaz. He still speaks to people today and say, hey, help this brother out. Help this sister out. Slip him some money. Give him some clothes. Give him some food. Here's a bag of food. Take this home. That sometimes at the end of Oneg, we, we just grab food and say, you need to take this. Oh, no, no, I'm okay. Are you okay? Well, time's a little tough. Take this food home. This is God's provision for you today. We got to believe that. So we also rejoice. God is going to provide. In Deuteronomy 31, verses 10 to 13, related to the smita. A lot of you read the book on that that's been written. But every seven years, during this time, there was a release. During this time, there was a public reading of the Word of God every seven years. In Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, verses 1 through 18, Ezra is coming back. He's involved. God is using him to rebuild the temple after the destruction of it for the first time. People are coming back out of captivity. They come in. They find the Torah scrolls. They had been hidden away, and they found them, and they opened them up, and they began to read, and they read that they had come back at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, and they stood up. I'll leave you to read it for yourself, Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, verses 1 through 18, and they all stand up, and they began to read concerning the, the Torah and celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And he then says to the people, go and rejoice, send portions to one another, and celebrate And they said they hadn't celebrated like that in a long time. They'd been in captivity for many years, and nobody had celebrated. So he commands them to celebrate that God is their provider. In Exodus 34, 22, this season is called Chad Hasif, which means the feast of ingathering, the the gathering of the crops, the fruit, the things that God has provided. There are a lot of meanings attached to Sukkot. One, that he's Adonai Yira, the Lord who provides even in the wilderness. 
Two, that he's Emmanuel, God who's with us. It anticipates Olam Haba, Olam Haba, the world to come, the coming age of the kingdom of God. It anticipates the dwelling of God at the blowing of the shofar, coming to be with his people. That is some of the thought that's behind this season. That's some of the thought of the blowing of the shofar that starts way back at Yom Torah, but it ends at the end of Sukkot and the blowing of that. And it's interesting that that's when the reading cycle ends and you start over. It's like new beginnings. The fullness of God is coming to the earth, and now it's time to start again with new life and new energy that comes from God. It's an exciting time. We know that Yeshua is attached to this. It says... We know from study that by the time of Yeshua's day and the temple being established, that those who ran the temple had developed a water ceremony called Nisuch HaMayim. It was a processional to the pool of Salon. And they had golden pitchers where they would get water and all these priests would come and they were returned as they went from the, the pool of Salon and they would pour these out as a libation offering and eventually be so much water that a stream of water would begin to come forth from the temple area and everybody would come. Thousands, remember, this is a, people are coming from all over to celebrate this feast. It's packed. And the stream is going out. And it's at that time we're told in John the seventh chapter, that Yeshua cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a great time staging. Everybody's excited about the water coming from. Everybody's still in Psalm 118, 25, you know, uh, save us, Lord, we pray. Oh, Lord, pray, let save us. Hoshiana, Baruch Hashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is what people were saying and celebrating. They're waving the, the, their, their various palm branches. They're really excited. And they see the stream coming down, which was the hope of the rain for the next season because that's when you pray for rain is during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're excited about that. And at that point, Yeshua stands up and says, anyone thirsts, you want living waters? Come to me. I'll give you living waters and they will flow out of you. And everybody, and the scripture says that many people say, is he the Messiah? Is he one of the great prophets? They made the connection. They saw the connection between the two. There was another ceremony they had in those days when the evening of the day would come, when the sun would set, that they would have these light ceremonies. They had torches, and they would bring torches, and there was all these lights, and people would come over. You, you think that the Christmas season was something where people come to see all these lights being decorated. They said that according to the scholarship, it was something to see. When you're thinking about hundreds of thousands of people with torches and lights and, and waving them before God, and they would come, it was a great lighting ceremony. And we know the Scripture says that Yeshua is the light of the world. And it connected to that. He's the light. He's the light that we seek. These things are just shadows and type, physical, physical models of the reality. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins at Yom Kippur. He is the sacrifices that are being offered up to make atonement for us. We, we know that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. If they did, you would cease to be offered. But Yeshua was offered once. You do not have to sacrifice him again. He was sacrificed once and all for your sins. His blood is more than able to give you not only forgiveness, but to change you and give you new life. You're in a place by accepting him that he will eternally accept you. Amen. So the question is, what about the Gentiles? Because I'm going to tell you, everything we read so far, talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and except for those strangers who dwell you know, in the midst of them, it obviously extends mercy and grace to them. Well, let me tell you something. God did not forget the Gentiles, and the house of Israel didn't either. I won't read the whole thing because I've just been given the time, but Numbers 29, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, goes through and says, okay, here are the sacrifices you're to sacrifice on the first day of Sukkot all the way out. I'll read the first part. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, 13 young bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Their grain offerings shall be mixed with flour, fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the 14 lambs. Also, one kid of the goat as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. That's the first day. On the second day of Sukkot, on the second day, present 12 bulls. And then he goes on to name two rams and such and such. And then it keeps going down. And it's interesting, why a different number each day? It's interesting in Judaism. For 1,800 years, this is what rabbinical Judaism teaches. These 70 oxen correspond to the original 70 nations of the world enumerated in the Torah who descended from the sons of Noah and all the ancestors of all the nations till this day. Israel brought these sacrifices as atonement for the nations of the world and in prayer for their well-being as well for their universal peace and harmony between them. Thus our sages taught, you find that during the festival, Sukkot, Israel offers 70 oxen for the 70 nation. Israel says, Master of the universe, behold, we offer you 70 oxen in their behalf, and they, should, and they should have loved us. Instead, in the place of my love, they hate me, Psalm 109. Further, they remark, if the nations of the world would have known the value of the temple for them, they would have surrounded it with a fortress in order to protect it. For it was of greater value to them than for Israel. That Israel understood that Yom Kippur was to deal with their sin and he, they knew that God called them to be a priestly nation interceding for others. They well, when do I do this? Yom Kippur is all about us. Get our atonement. Well, when the Sukkot came and they began to offer up all these bulls, which was a term that was used to refer to the nations of the earth, when they added it all up, at the end of the last day, it was 70 bulls, and they understood we are making intercession, atonement for the nations of the earth, that they will not be destroyed, but they will be accepted. So that's the first thing. What about the nations? God provided for the nations of atonement, but it doesn't end there. It ends here. 
in Zechariah 12, I mean, Zechariah 14, there's a call to the nations in Zechariah where the scripture says that at the end of all things, there's going to be all these wars, and at the end of that, that the nations that are left are to go up to the land of Israel doing the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they refuse to do so, that the rain will be withheld from their land, from those nations. That God anticipates in the last of all things, he speaks through Zechariah, that in the last of all things, that the nations of the earth will have to send representatives to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Because why? Because God's going to establish that he's not only the God of Israel, he's the God of the whole world. He is the God of all things, all nations, every nation. And he's going to bring every nation into the flow of his appointed times and feasts. His days. That's what he's going to do. We may not see it down. We see a trickle now. We see it in the Messianic movement. We see it in some of the Jewish roots movement, Hebrew roots movement. People are getting it. They're starting to understand and see. But the fullness will come when Yeshua himself comes in all of his glory and establishes rule and reign on this earth that the law of God will go forth out of Zion over the whole earth. So I like to say to people, we're getting a head start. We don't want to be caught. We're doing some pre-study by learning to flow with God's Moedim. We know we're not keeping it according to Mosaic law, nor are we required to. Especially if we're in D.C. It would be wrong for us to try to offer up the sacrifices, especially since we know that Yeshua is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the reality that we hold on to. And so that's what we proclaim, and that's what we believe, and that's what we want to celebrate with this season as we go forth. Amen? Well, I hope that helps you with the, the season, what it's all about, why we do what we do. There's a whole lot more that can be said, but I want people to have that understanding because I don't want people to go away with a misunderstanding of these things. Sometimes people think, well, y'all do that because you think that brings your salvation. Wrong. We don't believe that. We know it's Yeshua who's the one that brings our salvation. He is the Savior. Not by any works we have done, but by the giving of his own life. The worship team can return. As the worship team is returning, Daya and Jasmine are going to start us off in their worship by presenting a special dance that they have put together.